episode of Meet the Creatives. I am here with Linda Deckard. Linda, thank you for, so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's great to be here. That's awesome. And my uh, college professor, Mike Sherb, is going to be thoroughly confused because uh, he, in passing, told me to check out your website uh, as a reference on how I can make mine better. And, uh, and here we are four years later or so, and you're on the podcast. I am now... Uh, just entering my first job, and it's kind of a crazy full circle. Okay, well, do you know that Mike was my client for many years when I, he was at PSEG? Oh, PSEG. Oh, that's right. He worked for a couple. He always had these crazy stories, but what was it like working with him? Because he was beloved by his students, like I, I think more than any other professor at my school. So what was it like to work with him? Oh, it, he was a great guy. He's, he is. I shouldn't say was. He, he is a great guy. Um, he was a fantastic client to work with um, because he would always give us an incredibly clear briefing and he was always support, very, very supportive of the design process. So he was a gem of a client. But for those uh, people who do not know Linda Decker, uh, she is the founder and president of Decker Design, a leading visual communications design firm working with leading companies in energy, banking, healthcare, legal, creative, among other industries. Uh, in the 20 years that you have you know, had, had your agency, what have been some of the, the best parts about it and what have been some of the worst? Um, well, I wouldn't say the worst. But I would say the, the hardest part was just getting started and learning about business and all of the things that you have to learn about business from, um, from, from getting new business to learning how to write a contract to nego negotiating is really hard right. um, because, you know, you always feel very intimidated by a client, especially when you're starting out. You know, you want the you want the client to hire you, but you don't want to underprice yourself. So I think there's just like a lot of those issues that are really hard right. um, getting started. And also when you don't have um, a very big team because you, you don't have much money that, you know, you're working a million hours. And um, so I think that's really the hardest part. But the most rewarding has been really all of the people that I've gotten a chance to work with and all of the new things that I've had a chance to learn. I think that is the best part about being a graphic designer is that every day you're learning something new. Like one day you could be working with an engineering company and learning about how a bridge gets built or how an airport gets designed. And then another day you're working with a financial client about how um, a financial product is put together. And then the next day, you know, you're working with a small business and you're starting to see how, um, what, what they're up against in their business. So it's never right. boring. It's always interesting. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. It's like permission to, to kind of snoop. And I, I remember that uh, Michael Beirut had talked about that uh, one time about kind of just a, being a graphic designer can, is so rewarding in and of itself. And then on top of that, like he was say, I think he was talking about like working with, um, working with the New York Times and like being able to be like in the newsroom. And it was like oh, a yeah. free yeah. pass. Yeah, I remember that story. Yeah, so that's so cool. And I, I feel the same way. I've had a lot of, a lot of free meals working on like menus. I used to do like more or less pro bono work. And I was just like, hey, if I could just come here and drink and eat for free, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be here for months, months at a time. Oh. Now, now I, I write up the invoice. Like how do you, how do you go from like st starting – like from like the very beginning to like where you are now, like I, you have multiple people that work in your office. I think it happens very gradually. It's one of those things that you don't feel it just happens overnight. Right. Um, you know, you, you just, you, you build little by little and probably a lot of people when they first start out will hire a freelance assistant some, or maybe um, an intern from a school. Right. And I certainly did that. I had a, a, a several different people who were 
um, who were full-time students who would work for me for a few hours a day. Um, I think the hardest, you know, what you were just saying about you think you're going to, you know, start your own business or be a freelancer and have so much free time and that life is going to be yeah. so great because of all this flexibility. And instead, what happens is you're working Not harder than you've ever worked before in your whole life. Right. All right. So last month, you published uh, a new book called Responsive Branding. I'm going to put it in the comment section. Uh, congratulations, by the way, for publishing your book. And Thank you. Uh, I'm curious to know about, you know, writing the book and then also to what the book is about. So the process of writing the book and then, you know, what it's all about. Right. Well, um, writing a book is an incredibly difficult task to take on, which I found out. And I had a friend who had encouraged me to do it and said, oh, you could get it. You could get it done in about three weeks, which is Was not true. Um, <laughs> it took a, it took a year. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I have this theory about branding that a great deal of branding uh, over the last, I would say over the last 15, 20 years has really been about corporations looking to find ways to save money and to create these systems to make the design process more efficient. Right. And that's not everyone, but it is a great number of corporations that do that. And so what I wanted to look at were organizations that were looking at branding in a very different way. They weren't looking at it as a way to cut costs, but rather they were looking at the what was going on in the world today and realizing that they had to be much more agile and that they couldn't be so regimented to the, the old corporate identity manual. Right. And so what I found was there, there are a number of organizations, and GE is really one of is in my opinion, is the is the best essay in the whole book because I think they embody uh, more than any other organization my thesis, which is this concept of agility and what I call responsive branding because what they are doing is, in essence, they are responding to the world around them and they're and what GE is creating around their brand is they have a very coherent voice and with that voice and that um, sort of their core principles, which have to do with innovation, being a company that was founded by Thomas Edison, that they are going out there. And I think what you see in their newest ad campaign is that they are, um, is it they're a technology, they are a technology company that manufactures things. And so anyway, um, that's where I think that um, the the interesting work in branding is being done by organizations that are looking at it in a very, very fluid way. There's um, actually a really interesting article in Fast Company this month uh, that kind of actually supports my thesis, which is about uh, Beyonce's personal branding and how she has created this brand that is constantly changing and evolving and constantly improving, but responding to the culture around her right. and that she doesn't stay in place. But yeah. yet you, you sort of know what Beyonce embodies. Right. And that's in a very similar way that is what GE and other organizations like GE are doing that are really innovating. Yeah. Um, do you, what do you think the future of, of, of branding is? Or where do you think that it's going? Because I can definitely see that there, there is a, a shift that's been happening recently in, in the way that brand, brands and are kind of interacting. Um, but where do you see it going in, in, in the next couple of years? And well, I think the pendulum is going to swing towards far more creative executions that um, branding is it, what people are going to start to realize 
all through, say, the, the corporate chain is that it's going to require much more care, time, and attention than it ever has before. Um, no longer will people be able to go out to market with something that is not unique. I right. think that because there's so much going on in the media and everyone's attention is so fragmented that if you want to break through, you really have to, you have to continually change and do, do things that are very unique. So I think that the actual, what, what, where the industry is going is going to require more care, more attention, more, um, more actual creative conceptual work right. in order to be able to make that kind of impact. And I right. think that instead of a big giant, um, you know, corporate identity website PDF or whatever with something that has tons and tons of rules in it, right. that what will happen is there'll be some core principles, and then everything that the corporation will do will uh, will really work around all those core principles, but it will be executed in very different ways across all these different forms of media. Right. that are out there right now and there'll be more media that we haven't even imagined yet. Right. I have a, a best of section that I do on the podcast and I think that last bit there that's going on the best of clips, that was good. I like that. So you completed your uh, MFA in design criticism at SVA in 2014. Yeah, recent. Very you know, recent. Very recently. And, uh, and you worked full time and went to school full time. So we're talking about kind of difficult things to deal with. How were how you able to manage all that and uh, well, it was really hard. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't sleep. Okay, I would get up at 4 a.m. most days, and I would start to work on my uh, my class assignments from about 4 in the morning until about 8 in the morning. And then I would wow. quickly get ready for work, get to work, um, you know, about 9, 9.30. And then um, I would leave work about 4 in the afternoon every day in order to get over to SVA because most of our classes started at about 4 and ended around 8. Right. So it was it was almost every single evening that we had classes. It was tough. It was really tough, but very very rewarding. I right. love the program. The designing the the design criticism program was a writing program. So that okay. was really the the huge difference for me. So I was, you know, as a trained designer, I was really very much of a visual person. So what I really feel and had felt when I wanted to go into the program is that um, the written word is becoming more and more important in the design field yeah. and being able to express yourself clearly, succinctly, um, and impactfully is, is, is more, has become more and more important. Right. So, you know, you think about, you know, blogs, social media, just about everything. And, and, you know, we're almost becoming, um, very academic in a certain sense because, you know, we all want peer review. We all want to, um, have our ideas published in journals, uh, et cetera. So I felt that I wasn't going to do it on my own and I wanted to, I wanted and felt I needed the structure of a program. And I just thought the, um, that the criticism program that Alice Twemlow and Steve Heller had founded was just incredibly excellent. I had gone and observed a lot of, uh, you know, when there were things that were open to the public, I would go and I would participate in those particular events. Um, right. and, and it was really great. Yeah. That's good. I love Stephen Heller, by the way. I was just reading uh, one of he's his great. books. and I've listened to, he's a riot on uh, Design Matters with uh, Debbie Millman. Yes. <laughs> he he's, is a riot with He should her. be on he, like every a, time. He's, a, he's amazing. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so speaking of while we're on Debbie Millman, I also uh, heard from her podcast that uh, you are part of AIGA Women's Lead. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could maybe tell me a little bit more about that and you know how people can get involved, etc. Well, you know, on the national level, what we are really doing is we're we're sort of um, establishing like the uh, criteria around what Women Lead really stands for, and what we want to do is we want to celebrate the accomplishments of the many women who are in the profession. Um, We want to connect many of the women together who are um, a a part of AIGA. And we want to, we want to cultivate leaders for tomorrow. And so, um, so in um, October, we, you know, where AIGA is having its uh, national uh, um, conference in Las, uh, Las Vegas, we are, um, we are helping to present a workshop that is pre-conference. And then what we have done is we're encouraging all of the chapters to get involved. And uh, many of the chapters, if you look at AIGA.org, you can start to see some of the activities. And I think locally, uh, AIGA New York has done uh, several events and AIGA Rhode Island has done many, many events um, this past there are year. so many fantastic women designers out there who are, I mean... I look at the people who are my biggest influences, you know, uh, Debbie Millman, you, Paula Cher, um, Jessica Hish is going to be on later uh, this month, um, you know, that, and so many of, of the people who have inspired me have been women, but then when I go to look online, it's just a bunch of dudes, it's just like, it's nothing but, but, but men, and it's, I, I, I didn't really think about it too much, and then, and then you know, I saw AI, AIGA Women's Lead, and I kind of took a look again, and I was like, you know what, come to think of it, there really isn't enough representation of, of you know, women in design. I think that's so important to, to kind of cultivate and bring people together. And that's what's so cool about AIJ in the first place. So, Well, I think, you know, really our issue is that we really want to help women develop uh, leadership skills. Right. And so one of the, uh, we have a, a gender equity toolkit that we're going to be launching at the AIGA conference that really is supposed to help to uncover biases that we may all have that are unconscious that we all grow up with. Because if you look at the industry, just what you said, the, um, m- many of the leaders are men, but many, but the vast majority of the industry, probably close to 80% is female. And right. so we really want women to um, develop those skills to be leaders, whether it's today or tomorrow. I'm, I'm <laughs> saving, I, I think I'm going to start saving like a dollar a day so I can go to this AIJ uh, conference because Las Vegas is kind of far from New York if you're a yeah. broke designer. But uh, hopefully I'll keep working up until then and, and I will go. So that's my you goal. Should. You should. It's a good way to meet it. people. AIGA really should give me a plane ticket at this point, I think. I've had like a whole bunch of presidents <laughs> from the AIGA. This is pro bono for free. No, I'm just kidding. But seriously, though, some free tickets would be cool. Maybe not the airfare. But uh, okay. I'm going st- to stay on track here. I'm stay on track. <laughs> what? So over the past 20 years, I'm sure you've had your fair share of hiring uh, a, a number of people and working with people of all types. Um, what are some of the characteristics that you look for you know, when, when hiring someone? Do you kind of um, hire based solely, like, mostly on talent or is it kind of like the, the, that person's character? How do, you, how do you judge when someone's the right fit to work at you know, Decker Design or any agency for that matter? Well, I think, every, you know, I would say that just about anybody um, 
has a sort of mixed bag of criteria that you can't just you can't just hire on talent alone because let's say you meet someone who's very talented but you can't stand the idea of having to spend every day with them right. because you just don't like them you know right. that's that's you know that's a you know very realistic kind of uh, yeah. way to decide and you can't hire someone just because you like them because they may not have the correct amount of talent to be able to work with you right. so I, I would say that we we first look for talent and then we look for someone who has really who has excellent people skills that can fit in well with the other you know someone who plays well with others right. because we have a, we have a really nice team of people and we don't want somebody to come in and sort of you know not be fun to be right. with and I would say there you know other things that we look for are you know people who can read and write well because I've really found that you know I come back to what I was saying before about writing oftentimes we even find that cli our clients are so overworked they'll give us something that is only really half formed and, and we need to sort of sit and in order to design it well we have to change the way the words are, are working in the piece right. so we will you know any one of our designers um, can write and so they'll sit down and they'll rewrite whole whole parts of uh, a piece so that it can work well with a client Wow, that's awesome. Reading and writing skills are incredibly important. So yeah. I'll, I'm going to give you another piece of advice. Get a subscription to The New Yorker. Yeah. The New Yorker has the, some of the best um, essays that you could ever find. And it is a variety of topics from yeah. anything from uh, surfing to refugees in Syria. So right. it, will take you in, it will take you many places. Yeah. I, I recently discovered, uh, again, this is showing how green I am here in my career. But I, uh, I recently discovered Seymour Chwas, so he has designed Quast. Quast, sorry. See, that's what I'm saying. But, uh, but I saw... <laughs> I used to work for him. That's how I know. What? Really? Okay. Yeah. You have to tell me about that. The, but that's why I, I know about The New Yorker, which is really sad. But uh, working with Seymour Quast, tell me more. Oh, well, I worked at, um, so anyway, I worked at, um, I worked at a company called Lubal and Pekalek. So, um... Herb Luballin and Alan Pekalik were the partners of Luballin Pekalik. Herb Luballin passed away. Alan Pekalik took on the mantle of the firm. And then he and Seymour Quast came together and they formed a company called Pushpin Luballin Pekalik, right. which was only in existence, I think, for about maybe three or four years, um, maybe five at the tops. And so Seymour, um, so Alan and Seymour sort of split the work in the studio. Alan's focus was corporate design. Seymour's focus was much more, um, you know, eclectic and right. illustrative. And so we, all of us in the studio worked for both of them. Right. Um, I worked more often for Alan than I did Seymour, but we all got together recently actually to, um, to sort of celebrate Seymour's Kickstarter right. because you know he's um, he's coming out with a new book yeah. about the art of war, right. and so it's a it's a very uh, anti it's an anti war piece, and so we all wanted to be there, uh, all of his former employees that support him. That's so, so he's cool. a really wonderful, gentle, incredible person with enormous talent. Yeah. I'm so I'm so happy that I, I found him. But again, um, so I I like many young designers uh, just was put out into the world in, in May after graduating from college and uh, I had a very difficult time trying to find a job in, in my world. I mean, you know, it happened kind of in short order, but it felt like, it felt like ages and uh, it was kind of like, a, 
an up and down roller coaster. I cried four times in in the city. Uh, Terrible. Yeah, I know. I have a crazy story about how I, I worked for one day. One, it was my first day. I made this Facebook post about how I was so happy we were, like working in New York City, and it was like my lifelong dream. Like, finally a, new, a designer in New York. I said that, and then it had like 170 likes, and everyone's like, so proud of you, so proud of you, chase your dreams. And I was there for a day and a half, and for whatever reason, it didn't work out. It was at lunch they let me go, and my recruiter called me and told me that I had, that I had to go. So they like kicked me outside. And oh, I no. Yeah. It's like breaking up with someone over a text yeah. to go and call your recruiter. But, um, I, had, I had a really bad first job. Really? Really, really bad. This, this could be a new segment. So if you have a... Bad you, first jobs? Yes. <laughs> uh, let's, let's hear. What, what was your worst first job in, in design? Okay. So I think, well, I worked there a little bit more than one day. I'm trying to think. of So it was July, August, September, October. And I quit in November because it was so horrible. So this guy who was the, who was the creative director... He had a handlebar mustache that he used to twirl all the time. Oh, my God. And so it was almost like a cartoon That's character so of a really evil, you know, one of those evil characters. And he used to just scream at us. And I'm, I'm a very sensitive person. And I, <laughs> no one ever screams in my office. Right. It's probably because of this horrible first job. So he right. used to scream at us all the time. And then what he would do on Friday nights, because he would get so mad, because we had to use this thing called a stat machine, which you probably have no idea what it is, but it's basically, it's a a machine that would take, that that would photograph the mechanicals that we were working on and we had to insert photographic paper in it. The paper would go through a a series of chemicals and then it would spit out through a dryer. Well, our stat machine used to break down all the time. And on Friday nights, when everyone was ready to go home, he would make us all take apart the stat machine. And then the last time that he made us do that, he made us clean it with toothbrushes. And I had my boyfriend waiting outside and I was like ready to start sobbing because, (sighs) you know, it was like, it was Friday. It was like 6.30. We were all tired and we had to clean the stat machine with toothbrushes. And I went home that night and I told my mother and she said, just quit. Just quit. This is a terrible job. You're just crying all the time. So we all have terrible jobs. So I had the guy with the handlebar mustache. Oh, my God. Oh, that sounds ridiculous. I think your story was worse, though. That sounds awful. It's just pretty bad. You'll have to come over to the office and say hello. Me? Be in the city, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. I'm ready. I'm going over and say hi. I will. I definitely will. I love going places like that. It's so exciting. Michael Beirut (laughs) told me that this is how positive of a person Michael Beirut is. I'm not sure if he said this on the podcast or in person, but he said that he liked the, his favorite part about job searching was that it was like sightseeing and that he would apply to places just to like go into the office and like look around and like the different lobbies and stuff like that. I was like, I want to go sightseeing. So, okay, now I have Decker Design, Razor Fish I'm going to next week. I've never been there before. That could be cool. So, all right. How's it get back on track? I told you this thing goes off the rails every time. I have ADD. So you are the founder of the communications firm Cerulean, uh, which specializes in issues surrounding urban resiliency and sustainability. Uh, could you tell me a little, a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, 
So anyway, so the, the, um, the seed of Cerulean started when I was at SVA because I was in my first year when Hurricane Sandy hit New York, and I grew up on the south shore of Long Island, and many of the families that I knew um, growing up had homes that were pretty much destroyed in Sandy. Um, and so I started, um, Carrie Jacobs, who is one of my teachers, had assigned me um, a, a paper about um, resiliency. So I started to investigate it. And just like you are talking to tons of people here on your podcast, right. I called up a lot of different people who were engineers, landscape architects, and had conversations. And I started to get very, very interested in what was going to happen to New York City um, in the face of climate change and rising sea levels. Right. Um, I'm also a surfer, so um, I'm, I sort of feel like I'm very connected to the water and yeah. understand aspects of water that maybe like the um, average person may not sort right. of be aware of. So, uh, so anyway, I, um, I started, so I had this interest and uh, I, I kept going with it and I've been doing work with the Waterfront Alliance in New York, which is a nonprofit that is really about, um, it, you know, it brings together a lot of people who have um, interest in the water. So that's the general public who might be interested in recreation. There's a working waterfront that is a part of the New York, New Jersey area. Um, lots of shipping goes on. It's a very big part of the economy. Um, and uh, there's also a lot of uh, real estate development that's going on on the water right now. So there are issues with um, access to the water so that we don't build and not allow people who may have limited income, who may not be able to afford some of these luxury buildings, that they will no longer have access. So I became really interested in all of these topics and decided to create a second company that would specialize in issues about, um, about climate change, sustainability, and how we as a city were going to be dealing with many of these events that are inevitable, that are you know, they, they will happen. You know, a hundred right. year storm doesn't mean the storm is going to happen in a hundred years. It right. just really means it's the, um, the severity of the storm is uh, statistically what used to happen maybe once in a hundred years, but it's right. not a really a misnomer. Yeah. I worked with some, with some pretty, I'm in the fire department and I, I was out in the streets for Hurricane Sandy and that was really kind of scary for me because I was like, whoa, like this, this kind of thing could just like happen. So... Do you feel do you feel like people um, in terms of you know because I'm obviously from New York too do you think that uh, they need to be more are they reactive or proactive at, at, at the moment in terms of preparing for things like this well I think that the general public is really sort of um, for the most part oblivious but I think if you look at um, the governments of uh, New York State and New York City, um, New York City in particular has been extremely proactive. There's a lot of work that's going on um, with engineering companies around the city um, to shore up uh, various low-lying areas. Uh, and the city is, is doing a lot of preparation. One of the biggest issues that we have in New York is all of public housing is basically has been built on very low-lying land. It's the vast majority of it is on the what's called the floodplain. And so those people who are economically vulnerable are also physically vulnerable to what may happen in the future and what could happen, you know, this fall when, you know, hurricane season comes around again. Yeah. So the city's really doing a great deal. They've changed all their building codes. 
Um, and so what I'm really interested in is the, um, is the communication around these issues because the architectural community, the landscape architectural community, the engineering community is deeply, deeply involved, but there's really hasn't been a good place for um, communication design. And I think that there is um, not only an opportunity, but an, a necessity to deal with some of these issues. That's so. That's so cool that people are, are working, and that's good to know because I'm. I get actually see New York City right he, from here, which is uh, so cool. But hopefully, and and my, in my world, I think that like the uh, tomo like tomorrow, there's just going to be like a giant like tidal wave that comes over and swallows us all. But who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but if you had to give uh, you know advice to someone like myself who's venturing out into the world of design, um, you know, I, I you clearly know a lot about branding, about design. Your typography on your website is perfect. I love it. Uh, but what would you recommend, you know, in terms of me going forward in my design career and young designers like myself? Uh, how should you carry yourself? You know, what? How should you get invested in your work? Where should you look? Any advice? Well, I think you know, it's uh, first of all, it's really important to pursue what you really love to do. So, if there's an area of design that you really have an interest in. Then you should you should pursue that. If you um, if you're sort of don't have any idea, then just go and work for the very best people you can possibly work for, and try to learn everything that you could possibly learn from them. Um, I think it was Michael Beirut maybe who did say like, don't ask someone to be your mentor, just yep. follow them all around, yeah. and then you know just learn everything that you can from them. And I and I think that really being open and trying to um, learn everything you possibly can from other people, whether it's somebody who's a peer or somebody who may be um, a boss or a supervisor. I think every opportunity has it has um, has really good things in it, and that you shouldn't just necessarily be dismissive of. And I know that sometimes early jobs can be boring, but you know, lots of designers do side projects and you can always do side projects to experiment with your own work. I mean, the great thing right now about the world of digital is that there's so much experimentation you can do without having to spend any money. You know, right. years and years ago, you used to have to go and buy film and have it processed if you were interested in doing something photographic. Um, you know, if you were doing any kind of design project, you had to buy materials to make it. Yeah. And now you can just experiment with things digitally. And it's so great so that you can do that. And then you can, you can post your work online and get people to react to it. Right. I, I would say, you know, do stuff on your own and learn as much as you can from other people. There's no reason that anybody has to do bad work. I mean, there's so much great stuff out there and so much stuff. It's so easy to learn from it and it's so accessible. Right. Like Seymour Quas. I said it right that time, right? Awesome. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to put everything uh, that we talked about today in below. I like doing this below in the comment section, uh, including your new book, uh, Responsive Branding, um, and also to your uh, beautiful new website. Congratulations on, is it how new? Is it like recently or like this year? It's this year. Okay. Yeah, I'll, you know, it's actually the spring. Yeah. yeah, it's relatively new. Yeah. yeah. Fun fact, just before we go, I uh, learned how to do clipping masks because uh, <laughs> because you had that Mathematica case study. Yeah. Right. Is that not even on there anymore? Or is that? Am I showing how like legit of a fan I am? It's no, often. it's on there. Oh, it's on there. Okay. Linda, thank you so much for coming on. This has been uh, fun. I'm sorry I'm so all over the place today. It's Friday, right? 
Friday. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. it's have, great. Have fun in the uh, in in the Hamptons. Are you are you surfing out there? Uh, the surf isn't so great today. Okay. So yeah, we're Next. in Montauk. It's not the Hamptons. Oh, Montauk. <laughs> so sorry. sorry. <laughs> tomato, tomato. You're you're on that side of the island. No, but far away. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, you're welcome. Okay. okay.